Let's turn in the scriptures to Zechariah. And today, we will, Lord willing, encounter God as he has revealed himself through Zechariah. I think Hebrews would have probably pronounced the name Zechariah, something like that. His name means the Lord remembers. And of all of these minor prophets, his name is probably the most familiar to us in our culture, not only because there were numerous Zechariahs in the Old Testament and in the New, but also because we have some even in our congregation who have his name. Zachary is the English derivation of Zechariah. So we have many people in our congregation we refer to as Zach or Zachary, and the name comes from Zechariah. Now, before I continue, I want you to know that today's message is, uh, is something I've kind of given up on. <laughs> um, I was trying to do the impossible. I was trying to teach Zechariah in one message. There might come a day in years ahead when I can do it, but today is not that day. I just can't do it justice. I ended up throwing in the towel on Friday morning and saying, I am just going to cover Zechariah chapters 1 through 6. So that's what we're doing today. My message is going to have basically two parts to it. The first part is I'm going to work through some critical introductory information about Zechariah. And then secondly, we're going to work through the eight visions in chapters 1 through 6. And we're going to do that, Lord willing, just before we conclude the service around the Lord's table, remembering Jesus' crucifixion, which Zechariah powerfully points toward. So, I'm going to begin our study with four pieces of information, okay? Introductory information about Zechariah. The first critical piece is that the 12 minor prophets were God's spokesmen to the nation Israel, a bit like political commentators today. We need to think of them as political commentators. Zechariah is the 11th of 12 minor prophets. They're called minor because the length of their writings are shorter. These 12 prophets were a bit like political pundits or cultural analysts. They publicly exposed their nation's problems, their nation's corruption. They predicted the nation's demise, and they also promised a better future. And one of the things that you see when they keep promising this better future is it's not because they don't have a better future because they have somehow improved and become better. They have a better future because God hasn't given up on them. He's made promises to them for centuries, actually for millennia at this point, and God is refusing to go back on his promises. They have a faithful God. So if these spokesmen major on, you're corrupt and your nation's going to be decimated, but God still has a hopeful future for you, we should expect that what they reveal about God are two major facets of his character, that God is fiercely just toward our corruption and that even the most corrupt people can have hope through God's way of hope. We learn that God is just and that he's loving. And this is what we need. This is why it's so crucial for us to understand the minor prophets because 
Our culture as a whole can only tolerate messages of love. If you preach messages about God's justice, people are like, why are you down in the doldrums, man? Why are you trying to discourage us? Man, you're doing psychological violence to us. Our culture can't handle serious messages regarding discipline, regarding vindication, regarding justice. As a, as a culture, we can tolerate one of the two, but if we tolerate one of the two, we've got a completely lopsided and wrong view of God. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself through Zechariah, and we as humans need to know our maker as he truly is, not as we imagine him to be. Second piece of critical information. To understand the minor prophets, the key is really understanding the basics of their history. You're not surprised by this. I've worked through it pretty much every week. It is good for us as we approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to have three basic facets of Old Testament history in mind. And these are first, that around 1000 BC, the kingdom was at its peak, at its strongest under David and Solomon. That was the United Kingdom. In the days of Solomon's sons, about 100 years later, the kingdom split into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And then the third facet is later on in the future, about 100 years later for the northern kingdom, about 100 years after that for the southern kingdom, both of these kingdoms were decimated. The north by Assyria, whose capital was in Nineveh, and the south by the Chaldeans, their capital was in Babylon. If you have this basic framework of understanding Israel's history, then you have a basic framework for knowing who these guys are talking to and when. What is the political situation? You would know, for instance, that Amos is speaking to the northern kingdom a few decades before it is decimated. Or you would know that Micah is speaking a long time before the southern kingdom is decimated, whereas a man like Habakkuk is speaking to the southern kingdom right on the verge of its decimation. You get an idea of where they fit. Well, today we're looking at Zechariah and what is distinct about him, along with Haggai and Malachi, the two books that come before and after him, what is distinct is that they are speaking their messages long after both decimations have happened and when the land is actually trying to be repopulated. That's when Zechariah is speaking. I pointed this out with Haggai two weeks ago, and I emphasize it again with Zechariah, that you kind of have to understand, just you have to have this picture of what the culture is like that he's speaking to. He's stepping back into Jerusalem, and everything's a mess. All the biggest buildings have been burned. They're in rubble. The area has to have open graves where people who lived through the decimation remember bodies being thrown. This is a city that has been attacked. It's been torched. It's collapsed. It's in ruins. And you just have to realize that the hope that he gives to these people is a hope that he's giving to people who have a horrible family past. The sins of previous generations have put them in this mess. And he's speaking to people whose lives in the present are barren, and it doesn't look like it's going to get better fast. Anytime soon, there's not a hopeful future. If there is a hopeful future, it's a long time in the distance. 
You've kind of got to get that picture that they're standing amidst ruins. They're picking up the pieces. That's the, the people to whom Zechariah spoke his message. No one who can hear and respond to God's message is really beyond hope. Zechariah says that to us right at the outset, if we just understand the context. The third piece of critical information is that Zechariah was probably raised by his grandfather. He was both a priest and a prophet, and he was murdered for his messages. If you look at the first verse of Zechariah, you learn that his father was Berechiah. His grandfather's name was Iddo. Along with Haggai, the prophet uh, whose book precedes Zechariah's, Zechariah is also mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. Both Ezra and Nehemiah mention Haggai and Zechariah. And in those books, Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah is only referred to as the son of Iddo. And the fact that he is sometimes only referred to as a descendant of his grandfather probably indicates that his father, Berechiah, died, probably in Babylon. Zechariah was probably raised primarily by his grandfather. And we also know that Iddo was a priest. We know that from Nehemiah. So that Zechariah grew up in a priestly family. He was not only a prophet, he was also a priest. And we also learn that Iddo was one of the men who returned, probably in a cohort, a massive cohort of maybe 50,000 people, from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's likely that Zechariah was a young man at the time, so he is one of those who returned. Finally, last detail that I think is critical to bring up is that a few centuries after Zechariah, Jesus explains and I'm quoting Matthew 23:35. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, was murdered in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. In other words, Zechariah is preaching to people, telling them you need to rebuild this temple. They're going to finish it within about four years of his first messages, and then he's going to die in that temple that he encouraged people to rebuild. He faced persecution from the Jews in his day. He was eventually murdered by the Jews of his day, just like Jesus, which is why Jesus was bringing it up. It is critical, I think, to sense the gravity of the the words we read today that Zechariah died for these messages he spoke. The last piece of information is that Jesus and his apostles treasured Zechariah. His prophecy is referenced over 70 times in the New Testament. And this is one of the reasons that I can't just deal with it in one day. (laughs) Jesus and his apostles referred to Zechariah's prophecies, his words, over 70 times. 30 of those are in Revelation. There are several in Matthew, some in James, some in Jude, several in Paul. Paul's letters to Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica. So let me give a few examples, okay? When Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Did you know that he's quoting Zechariah 8.6? He is. When James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, do you know that he's quoting Zechariah 1.3? Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Or Jude When Jude says you need to save others, snatching them like brands out of a fire, do you know that he's quoting or referring to Zechariah's imagery in Zechariah 3.2? 
When Paul says, an outsider could enter your church and he could hear you speaking God's word to each other in your songs and in your prayers and in your teaching. And that outsider could experience this. That outsider could say, God's here. Paul is actually saying that what the church is experiencing is a fulfillment of what Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 8.23. And those few examples barely scratch the surface. We're going to encounter a few more as we read portions of chapters 1 through 6. But I hope I've convinced you that Zechariah may be unfamiliar to you, and it shouldn't be. It should be something you not only know, but something you treasure. As a follower of Jesus, you should treasure Zechariah. We all should. All right. Zechariah. We're going to read scripture. Again, it begins on page 745 if you're using one of the hardcover Bibles. According to verse 1, if you do the timing, he spoke his prophecy in 520 B.C. He actually started it about a month after Haggai's ended. So Haggai and Zechariah were teammates. Zechariah is encouraging people to keep on keeping on, to keep doing what Haggai preached and, and start your work of building the temple. It had begun, and Zechariah steps in about a month later and says, keep on keeping on. Verse 3 of chapter 1 summarizes his life message. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. Twice, every statement is backed with the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and I'll return to you. I'm just going to preach a little mini-sermon right here. (laughs) If we today are distant from the Lord of hosts, from the God of angel armies. It's not God's fault. Do not blame it on God. God has shown us grace in Jesus. Jesus is the one whom the temple, the temple they're building in this day, he's the one whom the temple foreshadowed. He is the bridge, the great bridge between sinners and the God with whom we need to be reconciled. God was providing a way for this generation to be reconciled to him, and now we know everything that the temple was forecasting in Jesus. God has made a way. He has provided a bridge for sinners like us to be reconciled to him. You may be here saying, I have never followed Jesus. And today you could be reconciled to God if you want to. Return to me, your God says, and I will return to you. The decision's on you. It's in your hands. What are you going to do? Or you may be a Christian and you followed Jesus for two decades. And you're saying, I keep failing in the same stupid way I keep failing for years. And God says, get back up. Return to me and I will return to you. Get back up. Dennis, in our congregation, sometimes says, we're as close to God as we want to be. That is so true. Or Spurgeon gave a wonderful devotional encouragement to Christians when he said, if you have lost the sweet sense of your Savior's presence, and now are seeking him with a sorrowful heart, remember his promise through Zechariah. Return to me and I'll return to you. Do not live 
in satanic depression. If you have in sorrow repented of your sin, turned from it, and you've said, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. I walked away from you again for the thousandth time. I'm coming back to you. If that's you, God says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. Don't keep believing this lie that God is keeping me at arm's length, keeping me at a distance. He's not. If you repent, he welcomes you with open arms. He promises three times, the Lord of angel armies says, I will return to you if you return to me. This is an assurance, a powerful assurance. Now, Zechariah is really encouraging this generation not to be stubborn like their, their previous generations, like their fathers were. It was their stubbornness, their refusal to change that led to the decimation of Jerusalem in the first place. And he's saying, don't go back there. This is really the theme verse, I think, of Zechariah's life. And immediately in verse 7, he says, there was a single night the same year, 520 B.C., that he had eight visions. We're going to work through those relatively briefly. Eight different visions that Zechariah received in one night, and all eight of them form really a, a whole picture. Even the way the eight are given is poetic. So I apologize at the outset. The writing up on the screen behind me is going to be tiny. I think many of you are going to be able to see it anyway. I tried to make it as big as I possibly could, but I figured I had to put it on the screen in the poetic way it's given so that you see that the first vision and the last vision mirror each other, and the second vision and the second to last mirror each other, and so on. You've got to see that there's this poetic mirroring of all eight. It's profound, and that's why I've put them up on the screen. So don't worry about really writing everything down. Just, just take it in. Try to, try to chew on it mentally and, and grasp it and respond to it spiritually. The first vision in chapter 1 is these men on horseback who find the world at ease. Zechariah sees men who are riding horses. Some of the horses are red, some are brown, some are white. And an angel explains that these horsemen have been patrolling the earth And if you look at verse 11, they come back and they report the world's at ease. In verse 12 of chapter 1, the angel of the Lord. I think there's strong reason from chapters 2 and 3 to believe that this is Jesus, the messenger of the Lord. The angel of the Lord prays for God to bring justice on earth. He's basically saying, it seems like things are unjust. When is justice going to be brought to all of these wicked nations? And in verse 14, the Lord answers, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem. And this indicates that he is not going to let Israel's enemies off the hook. God knows that the wicked world deserves judgment. He's saying, I know it's not going to be like this forever. And God promises then in verse 16 that the temple is going to be rebuilt, that the city is going to prosper. And these promises were partly fulfilled within that century as the temple is finished, but they still really await complete fulfillment in the peace of the new Jerusalem that Jesus is going to establish when he returns. They've begun fulfillment. They haven't finished it. The second vision is four horns. Think like ram's horns or the horns of a bull. 
horns of really strong animals, followed by four blacksmiths. This is his second vision. Verse 18, he sees four horns. Verse 20, they're four blacksmiths, or maybe your translation has craftsmen. The horns represent the strong nations that fought against Israel. Think of rams fighting, clashing heads. They fight against Israel and they dominate Israel. And Zechariah sees these horns representing the nations who conquered Israel. And God says to Zechariah, these horns are going to be cut off or smashed by blacksmiths. Four blacksmiths. God is saying, Israel, I will judge the nations who hurt you. It's basically the meaning of that second vision. Now, I think that these four blacksmiths especially refer to the Greek Empire under the four generals of Alexander the Great. You're going to see this paired up in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8 um, in a similar way. But it only began to be fulfilled as Alexander the Great was used by God to conquer Israel's immediate enemies. It actually is going to have to come about that someone conquers Alexander the Great and that someone conquers the, 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 the army that conquered them and, and so forth throughout history. When are God's enemies going to be finally defeated? Zechariah's prophecy awaits that end, which is where the Bible ends in Revelation 19 and 20. Third vision that Zechariah gets that night is a surveyor that's told that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. That's chapter 2. Zechariah sees a surveyor measuring Jerusalem, and it's promised to him that the city's going to be rebuilt, and the city's going to experience peace, and three times in chapter 2, it says the Lord himself is going to live there. You'll see it in verse 5, verse 10, and verse 11. The Lord himself is going to live there. And verse 11 says, people of many nations will become God's people. The ESV says, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Again, this promise began to be fulfilled in Zechariah's day. Just a few years after he spoke this message, the temple is rebuilt. Then it's going to be continued in its fulfillment in the days of Nehemiah, maybe 80 years or so later when Nehemiah rebuilds the city walls. But it has continued to be fulfilled in the church. The church, according to Hebrews 12.22, is that multi-ethnic community, that community made up of people of many nations called Mount Zion. That truth led Pastor John Newton, who helped in the slave trade, and ended up regretting it and helping overthrow the slave trade with William Wilberforce. Pastor John Newton, he's most famous for writing Amazing Grace. He also wrote a hymn called Glorious Things of the Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. And he's referring to the church. And he echoes these words from Zechariah 2 when he says, With salvation's walls surrounded, you can smile at all your foes. God's with you. Wow. God's people, according to Zechariah 2, are the apple of his eye. And we who've been reconciled to God are really forever secure in his love. The promise, however, is not completely fulfilled in the church. It's, it's really when heaven takes over on earth 
and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and takes over on this planet. We're in the middle of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Fourth, profoundly, the filthy priest is given a change of clothes. In the fourth vision, Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest at the time, the high priest in Jerusalem, and it says that he's dressed with filthy clothes. Joshua, the high priest, represents the whole nation before God. The fact that he's standing in dirty, filthy clothes means that really the whole nation is polluted in God's sight. And in the vision, there are two people standing next to Joshua. The first one is the angel or the messenger of the Lord. I think this is Jesus. He speaks as if he's the Lord. And then the other is the angel who leads the armies of God's enemies, the accuser, Satan. Those two people are standing before that high priest in dirty clothes who represents the nation. And according to verse 1, Satan accuses Joshua. He's unfit to serve God because of the filth he's dressed in. And then Jesus responds in verse 2 and says, I snatched him, and all the people he represents, out of the fire. It's a way of saying these people are going to be trophies of my grace. I snatched him out of the fire. And in the vision, Jesus took off Joshua's dirty clothes. And we're told he replaced them in verses 4 and 5 with fine new clothes and a clean turban, what the high priest would have worn on his head. And then the Lord assures, look at these statements. The Lord assures Joshua that his past sin wouldn't keep him from serving. But verse 8, he's going to send his servant the branch. That refers to the the tree that's going to grow out of the Davidic line that seems like it's been chopped down at the ground. There's going to be another branch that grows out of that, a Davidic king. And verse 9, look at this. The branch is going to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What? Verse 10, and after that, Israel's going to experience peace. That is a profound picture of what the Messiah is going to do. This is a profound prophecy of what Jesus is going to do 500 years before Jesus comes. Jesus is going to dress himself in the people's filth. He's going to take our filth off of us and put it on him. And he's going to offer himself as the one whose sacrifice can cleanse our sin. And that sacrifice is going to be offered in a single day on the cross. And Jesus is then going to beat sin and death by rising again. And he's going to prove by it. It's exactly the way that Romans 4 ended. By rising from the dead, Jesus proved that he can declare you righteous. Because he not only bore your sin, he bore it completely, exhausted it, and beat it. This is how we can be justified before God. We've been singing about it. In the songs that powerfully capture this truth this morning, his robes for mine. He took my robes on him and was treated like I deserved. And then he put his robes on me and I get treated like he deserves. Incredible grace. This double imputation, double crediting my sin to Jesus, his righteousness to me. That is how we're united with God. That is how we can stand before God now and forever. It's only through Jesus. Zechariah powerfully pictures it 
here in the fourth vision. The fifth vision is that the candles are never going to stop burning. Chapter 4 is the fifth vision that Zechariah gets this night. He sees a lampstand with seven candles. And the candles are being fueled with olive oil that's dripping down to them through pipes connected to two olive trees. So there are two trees that have got pipes coming out of them, fueling candles so that those candles never stop burning. They keep getting oil. Now, verse 10 says that the candles represent God's purposes that are working out on earth. And I think the olive trees represent God's word. At this moment, that's being spoken by Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, who are speaking to the people, and God is using them to keep fueling his purposes on earth. That's my interpretation. You don't have to agree. But look at verse 6. The king at the time, Zerubbabel, should be encouraged that God's going to accomplish his plan, quote, not by might, nor by power, but all by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This vision teaches us that basically because God's spirit is fueling God's plan, God's purposes on earth can't be stopped. Nothing can stop God's plan. Now, according to verse 10, This means that no one should belittle the day of small things. You think back again to the context of these people. They're standing in rubble. Is there any hope for us? I mean, putting hammers to nails and rebuilding this structure that's nothing like what it was back in the day must have been so discouraging. Are we really doing anything that matters And God says, my purposes are going to be carried out on earth. Do not belittle the day of small things. The beginnings of these rebuilding might be small, but my purposes are great, and they're certainly going to be worked out on earth. Wow. Zechariah's efforts, the efforts of the people in his day, they must have seemed like just piddly things. God's plan would take centuries to grow, and yet the people need to understand that as they align themselves with God's will, no effort is worthless. Now, this vision of the oil-fueled candlesticks has rightly fueled the, the, the mission of the church through centuries. Many, many missionaries have claimed Zechariah 4.6 as, as the thing that gave them endurance. Among them is Robert Morrison, He's the first one in the modern era to take the gospel into China. He did it in 1807. He got on a boat, and someone joked and said, what do you think you're going to do? Do you think you're going to convert China? And he essentially said, not by my strength, but by the Lord's Spirit, it's going to happen. Robert Morrison is influential. Obviously, this painting is in the National Gallery of Scotland. He treasured Zechariah 4.6, but let me tell you what one of his biographers said of the summary of his life. Quote, the first missionary to China planted no churches. He led only a handful of individuals to faith in Christ. His efforts to learn Chinese, to translate materials into Chinese, and to spread the gospel, it all necessitated a life of hardship, 
He frequently left his family for six months at a time, traveling in times of war. He suffered sickness in a harsh climate. When he attempted to publish his works, a fire in the city destroyed his printing paper. For much of his life, setbacks seemed to be more numerous than advances. Despite all this, God used Morrison to pave the way for thousands of missionaries after him who would plant churches all throughout China and would win millions to Christ. Through God's spirit, Morrison produced the first Chinese-English dictionary. That allowed missionaries after him to learn the difficult language. He published tracts, doctrinal pamphlets, and a hymn book in Chinese. Even more influential was his first translation of the Bible, which became the foundation for the Bible that most Chinese people use today. Just imagine him sitting there, working on a Chinese-English dictionary, and he's getting toward the end of the bees. Am I doing anything that really matters? He says what fuels him is, it's not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When God's plan is to spread his gospel so that people in China will be worshipers of Jesus, he's going to accomplish it. Don't belittle small efforts. Don't belittle small beginnings. Don't belittle service that seems insignificant, not when the Lord's involved. The sixth vision that he gets is a flying scroll that records curses for lawbreakers. Hmm. Back to the theme of judgment. Zechariah sees a massive scroll that's flying. It swoops down over the whole land of Israel, and on the scroll is written the judgments of God that are surely going to come to everyone who breaks his law. And this is really a warning against Jewish people, those who knew the law. You will experience the curses of the law if you continue to rebel. The seventh vision is a basket full of evil that gets taken to Babylon for judgment. Zechariah sees a large basket with a woman inside, and the woman represents the wickedness of God's people. And the heavy basket that's full of the Jews' guilt is then carried to Babylon, where God's judgments will eventually fall. And Revelation 17, 18, and 19 describe this immoral woman named Babylon, who at the end of history is finally going to fall. Judgment on the world is coming. Judgment on Babylon. Those in the world system who oppose God, it's coming. Zechariah forecasts it. The last vision, the eighth vision, is of four charioteers who carry God's justice into the world. This is the eighth vision, it's the final vision, and Zechariah sees really what he saw in the first. Teams of differently colored horses They're strong horses who are now pulling chariots. And it seems like these four chariots represent God's judgments that will one day extend from Jerusalem and go out to the four winds of heaven. Or that'll cover the whole earth. Seems to be what the vision is about. Four charioteers carry God's justice into the world. And what's being communicated is that God's going to bring judgment to the four winds of heaven. 
I hope you can see how there's a prophetic mirroring of these visions. And we really have to put them all together. We will, but let's read the end of chapter 6. Zechariah 6. It ends by identifying the individual, the person on whom all of this prophecy hinges. The Lord, at the end of chapter 6, commands Zechariah to make a silver and gold crown and then put it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And in this way, look at verse 12, the Lord pictures that the branch, this royal descendant of David, this king, is going to be both a king and a priest. Verse 13 says, there will be a priest on his throne. The priest is going to sit on the throne. And then verse 15 says, those who are far off, that's a reference to Gentile peoples, those who are from distant lands, those Gentiles, will come and help build the Lord's temple. Wow. The Davidic king is going to come. He's going to be a priest who stands between the people and God, actually facilitates their being reconciled to God. And many Gentiles are going to come in in that day. Wow. So I'd put together all of these visions something like this. God's plan for Jerusalem, that there, there in Jerusalem, a Davidic king and priest will in a single day cleanse sin and reconcile to God people of many nations. That plan cannot be stopped. God's plan for Jerusalem, what's going to take place in that city, it cannot be stopped. And yet, God will bring judgment on all who do not submit to that king. Profound composite picture these visions that Zechariah gets in a single night. Doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Jew, if you're a Babylonian, or if you're someone who lives in one of the four corners of the earth, as it said, if you don't submit to Jesus, you will face God's judgment. That's the future. And also, it doesn't matter who you are whether you are a Jew or whether you are someone who is far off, if you will bow before the branch, the Davidic king, who is the priest who in a single day made an, made a, an offering that can cleanse you from sin, if you will submit to him, you will be reconciled to God and you will experience every blessing that Zechariah promised. You will eventually experience it. These are powerful words that we need to treasure. Tri-County, all our hope is centered in Jesus. He's the one Zechariah is pointing us toward. Can you see it? Jesus is the king priest who can cleanse our sin. He is today reconciling people to God from every nation, including China. And he will return to reign on this earth and bring peace to this world. So we must never lose hope. It does not matter what the newspaper headline of your life looks like today. It could look like shambles. It doesn't matter if your hope is where Zechariah pointed. You've got hope that can't be taken away. God's purposes will be worked out on earth. His plan for earth will be accomplished. 
And if you need encouragement today, study these vivid dreams that Zechariah meticulously reported. They'll feel your hope. Let's pray.